This morning we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Now we are picking up uh, directly where, where Justin left off last week. And let me just read uh, the last verse that, that was of his section, verses 10 through 17. Because that really kind of sets the stage for what we're going to talk about, how we're going to move through this, and how we're going to address this this morning. And so you'll remember that as Justin spoke, uh, colorfully as he did, that he described this sense that people were kind of breaking up under different leaders. And so within our context, it'd be like, well, Matt's my pastor, or Jesse's my pastor, or Justin's my pastor, or some pastor from the past. Well, this is the guy I identify with. And so they're doing this with Paul, with Apollos, and with Cephas, saying, this is my guy. This is who I follow. And so Paul's telling them, this is completely and utterly ridiculous. This isn't how the church works. There's one person who gets to be head over the church, and that's Jesus. And we all follow him together. We all get to be unified around Jesus, and we do that together. Now look in, verse 17. He's saying this is kind of why, and this is so important for us to understand as we begin to unpack 18 through 25. Look what he says. He says, Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. This is what we do. We preach the gospel, the Holy Spirit applies it to our lives, our hearts are transformed, and we come to know Jesus in faith and belief. He came to, tra- he came to preach the gospel, but it's a specific kind of delivery. They wanted somebody to stand and to wow them, to make them laugh, to hold their attention, to have them just kind of right here. And look what he says. I came to preach the gospel, but not with eloquent wisdom, lest... The cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So what do we get from this? We take away the understanding that if why you follow Jesus is because someone convinced you that it was a good idea or you are emotionally buying in or you're so incredibly persuaded by their oratorical flourish, by just how well they spoke, then this is what Paul's saying. To engage in this process is to look at the cross of Christ and say, it's not enough. It needs me. It needs my special delivery. It needs my special touch because simply to uphold and put forward the cross of Christ, nobody would ever come to know Jesus. So this is why Paul says, I endeavored, I purposed, I set out that I would not engage in eloquent wisdom and eloquent wisdom alone because to do that, would be to look at the cross of Jesus and seek to add to it. And so Paul, in 18 through 25, gives us this beautiful picture of what true wisdom is. And this is the crazy thing. He says it's foolishness to the world. Wisdom within the church, the wisdom we understand coming from God, Paul says the world looks at it and says this is complete and utter foolishness. This is complete and utter ridiculousness. This isn't something that can be learned. This isn't something that can be mastered. I think there are a number of things that kind of militate against that, that make it difficult for us to believe that, even those of us who grew up in the church and have been Christ followers since we were quite young. I think one of the things that just kind of comes to me is the idea that there is no task and no process that we feel unable to overcome with enough YouTube videos, right? And so with enough YouTube videos, we think that we can do anything. And so it sees us with motors turned apart and parts scattered all over the place and just crying as we watch this video, cursing this man and saying, why would you lead me into this blindly? Maybe that was my Saturday. Maybe that wasn't yours. (laughs) 
But we just have all of this information that leads us to believe that it's so simple for us to do these incredibly complex things that we need professionals to help us with. And some of us just is changing the batteries in a remote control. But when Paul gets into this, he wants us to understand that the wisdom of God isn't something that we can come to by gaining knowledge. And that the wisdom of God isn't something that we can manifest by just doing enough right things in a row. And so we're going to see that, that he attacks it on both of those grounds. But look at verse 18. He says, the word of the cross is folly and it is the power of God. It is folly, but it's also the power of God. And so how does it come to be those two things? So we see it depends on how you apprise the cross of Christ. And so when we look at the cross of Jesus, when we look at the sacrifice of Jesus, when we look at this is the way that God has cosmically ordered and set these things up, and if you look at it and you say, this isn't for me, this isn't for me, I don't believe, I think this is ridiculous, or I think this is good for somebody else, then for you, you are perishing, and you consider it to be folly. But if you look at the cross of Jesus, and it is transforming you, it is moving to save you, then it becomes for you the power of God. Now, how does that work? You see, some of us, we look at the cross of Christ, we look at Christianity, and we say that Christianity makes good sense as a worldview, and it makes good sense for obedience sake, but it, it, it doesn't make great sense as far as that there's this, this creator God who spoke everything into existence, and then humanity rebelled against this creator God, and somehow he's been moving in this process of redeeming them, of bringing them back to him in wholeness and perfection. And so you look at that system and you say, this is complete and utter ridiculousness. You see, I'm a man or I'm a, I'm a woman of science or I'm a man or I'm a woman of logic. And logically, this just is not the best way. This isn't the, the most whole and complete system. And so you look at it and you say, it's moronic, it's stupid, it's foolish. And so Paul wrote to this group and he said, you have to understand that for a lost person's mind, when they apprise, when they look at the cross of Jesus, if they don't believe, receive, and accept, they're saying it's folly. But this is where all of us were in the beginning, is it not? Most of us, the first time we heard the gospel presented, we said, well, this is, you know, it's got some interesting parts. It's certainly a fantastic story, but this isn't for me. And in as much as we stayed in that process, and in as much as we stayed in that mindset and that response to the cross of Christ, it remained for us folly, and we remained in this state of perishing. Now, you may look at your life and you say, perishing? What are you, full of it? I'm in this tremendous state of flourishing. Life has never been better. My finances have never been better. My wife has never looked better. Oh my goodness, she was a homely one. But we say that all of these things are on the up and up. All of these things are moving in the right direction. How could you then say that I am perishing? You see, I could say that you're perishing because when you and I tend to think of our lives, we think of it between the two times of birth and the time of death. But the time of my physical death is not the end of my life. You see, the time of my physical death, there is this reporting. And what happens at the time of my physical death is that I enter into this period, prolonged period of eternity of remaining and perishing. And the Bible speaks of that place as hell. And it's forever being separated from the love of God based upon how I apprised, how I responded to the cross of Christ today. 
And so how you are responding to the cross of Christ today and over the course of your life determines how you will spend eternity after physical death. Paul says if you reject the cross, if it's stupid to you, if it's, if it's moronic, if it's folly and foolishness to you, then you will continue to perish and forever be separated from the love of God. But he says, if you would look at the cross of Christ, and look what he's calling us to do. He's not looking at it and saying, oh, finally, it makes sense to me. Well, this is, this is good. Finally, I get Paul's argument. But if instead we would look at it and say, this is the power of God at work. And he says, then, then we will be those who are being saved. Now, this is terrific news. See, the course of our lives as Christians isn't moving into immediate perfection. And so there's this young child version of Matt who's just this complete and utter reprobate. And everybody's pretty sure he's going to be a serial killer. And then at some point, he comes to know Jesus. And the rest of his life, he lives in complete and utter perfection. You can ask my friends or family. Those things are simply not true, right? The first part a little bit. But the second part, certainly not so. It doesn't make me perfect but it leads me to daily and over the course of my life to continue and stay in salvation. God has saved me, but he is saving me still, and he will save me to the uttermost because my salvation is not contingent. It's not dependent. It doesn't rest upon some decision I made, but it rests in God's sovereign and all-powerful hand. Now, look at what Paul says in uh, Romans 1.16. This idea of the power of the gospel, the power of God. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for what purpose? For salvation. For who? For everyone who believes. And then he takes this concept of all of humanity in their minds to be separated into two spheres. We've got the Jews and we've got the Gentiles. We've got the Greeks. So everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so what we recognize, if the power of God is at work in you, then today you are being saved. And it doesn't matter that you weren't perfect yesterday, and it doesn't matter that you're not perfect today, because God is, and Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient. Amen? Amen. So Paul gets into this, and, and, and what he does in verse 19 is he begins to kind of give us some historical context for the claims that he's making. He says, you need to understand something. The cross will continue to be foolishness and folly and completely and utter ridiculous to those that reject it. And it's not enough to know something. It's not enough to do the right thing. And that's why he quotes Isaiah 29, verse 14, when he says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. And so Paul effectively quotes this verse that's saying, look, we know we have wise men and women out there but as God, I'm going to move in and I'm going to frustrate the outworkings of this wisdom. And I know we have these really clever people out there, these, these discerning people who look at a system and say, well, this is kind of how this thing works. And, and, and then if I take that thing and I incorporate it with this, then I, then I can make this over here. So God says, I'm going to frustrate those things. I'm going to thwart it. I'm going to bring it to nothing. But what we miss, if we just look at this quote from Paul, is the context from which Isaiah derives it. Isaiah's writing to this people and he's relaying the words of the Lord. And look at why God is doing this. Isaiah 29, starting in verse 13, says, And the Lord said, Because this people draw near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, 
So they're coming close to God. They're describing how great and how amazing God is. And they're, they're everything in the way of life and this manner of presentation is giving people an indication that they are following God. He says, while their hearts are far from me. You may attend church every Sunday for the rest of your life and have done so since you were seven years old and not be a Christ follower. You may say all the right things, you may do all the right things, and there may be no way for me to look at you and, and analyze your life and your pattern of behavior and know whether or not you are a follower of Jesus Christ because I can't see your heart. So God looks at, at Israel and he says, these people honor me with their lips, they're saying the right things. They're honoring with, with their mouth, they're doing the right things, but their heart is far from me. And look what he says in the last little bit of 13. He says, their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Effectively this, they were taught what it looks like to respond appropriately to God. For too many of us in church, this is how we know how to act in a church service. This is how I know not to cheat on my wife. This is how I know not to take things that don't belong to me because I am doing something that's been taught me by men. The fear of God is a thing taught me by men. Real transformation in the heart, real transformation in the heart affects not just what we know, but how we live. The wisdom of the world says that we can get there by learning things, or we can get there by doing the right things. And this is what God says. He says, I'm going to thwart, I'm going to upset, I'm going to bring that to nothing. So then Paul looks out and he says, who are there in this society that people would look at and say, Wade is the wisest man I know. Johnny's the wisest man I know. Ruth is the wisest woman I know. So he begins to kind of systematically pull back groups. And so he says, where is the one who is wise? And so he's attacking the Greek. In essence, he's saying, where is the philosopher? Where is this person who, if you stood in a room and just began to ask them questions, you said, Steve, tell me, tell me uh, pi to a thousand uh, digits. You'd be like, blah, 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 all these things. And Steve, tell me how these things came to be. You're like, well, the Assyrians established their community. And uh, I don't know why Steve's voice does that when he talks about things that he knows nothing of. <laughs> Steve, you should uh, check that out. And so then he turns to the Jews. He says, where is the scribe? So he finds this group of people who are experts with the law. And so we've got the Greek, we've got the Jew. And then he turns to everybody. He says, where is the debater? Where is the philosopher of this age? This person who just amasses knowledge. That if you have something that you need to know, like this Google of the first century, you could just go to them and be like, uh, you know, hey, can you help me out? And they're like, uh, I returned no results. I don't know what to tell you. But look what he says. You have all of these people. Where are they? And they would have responded and said, they're everywhere. We know who these people are. And how does God respond to it? He says, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Humanity, we keep creating better and better ways of doing things. Until lo and behold, we find out that the better way of doing something turned out to be not so great for us after all. Over the last couple of weeks, uh, maybe you've caught some of these headlines where some of the principal investors in Apple have looked at their products and said, man, these things are horribly addictive for kids. And they're fundamentally altering the ways that children engage information. And so these two principal investors that hold billions of dollars worth of Apple 
went to Apple and they said, you need to do something to address this. Now, I don't think it's for wise, benevolent reasons that they're doing this. I think they want to be the leader in this too. How do we address this? And so they created the, the iPhone. They created the iPad. They created all these various things that help us to be connected and do, to, to be that 24-7 all the time. And wisdom said we need to be connected. Recognize back in 2010, Steve Jobs, they just kind of rolled out the iPad, and somebody asked Steve Jobs in an interview, they said, do your kids love the iPad? Can you imagine? You've created something as cool as the iPad. Your kids know you've created it. And this interviewer said, do your kids love the iPad? And do you know what his response was? He says, oh, we don't allow that in our home. It's far too dangerous for them. Human wisdom fails. Human wisdom fails. When Facebook was first created, it was this small deal that's supposed to connect friends and family and let you stalk ex-girlfriends. And so what we, what we find in this is that researchers look at it now and they say the more time you spend simply consuming information but not interacting with people, the worse and worse you feel about it. And why is this? Because we look and what do people post on Facebook? They post the best of things except for you save brave individuals who are posting your very worst day. And I'm so thankful for that. Stay strong or stay weak. But one of the things we recognize is that God thwarts the wisdom of this world. And so we look at these things and think, man, we were so wise, but in reality, it turns out we are so incredibly foolish. But I want you to recognize that the wisdom of God is complete and utter folly to this world. And it's purpose to be so. Verse 21, it says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world didn't know God through wisdom. Do you see what he's saying there? He said, God set this up in such a way that, that no matter how smart Ron Holly gets to be, no matter how wise he gets to be, and, and if you don't believe it, he is, just ask him, no matter how wise he gets to be, he can never know God through wisdom alone. Kevin can never know God through wisdom alone. Sally can never know God through wisdom alone. And God has purposed and endeavored to make it this way. So how do we get to know him? He says it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. This is a system God has created. Whenever we're explaining the salvation story and we're sharing the gospel with someone, we're communicating several things. The one is, man, you are not an accident. You are here on purpose. There is a personal creator God who spoke all these things to, into existence. That humanity has rebelled against this creator God. And he is placing things uh, in existence within nature and within you to cause you to seek after him. So that you would look at the vast expanse of the universe and ask this question of how did we get to be here? and that those answers are ultimately found in him. And over the course of human history, repeatedly humanity has set out to get closer to these answers. But what is the answer? We recognize that in finding God through his son Jesus Christ is the only way to find true wisdom. So God calls it through the apostle Paul here, the folly of what we preach the folly of what we preach, that we preach a crucified Jesus. 
See, Paul is not indifferent to the concerns of people who want to have questions answered. He recognizes they want questions answered, but he also recognizes that these are not the right questions. These are not the right demands. He says, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Over the course of Jesus' teaching, and you can see this in John 6.30 and other places, Jesus will come out and say something. Have this amazing teaching, say, I and the Father are one. And the Jews will gather around him and they'll say, can you just, can you show us something to validate what you're saying? Can, can you just like pull a rabbit out of a hat? Can you do something that we would just be like, I've never seen a rabbit out of a hat. He didn't even have a hat. He just pulled it out of his hand. <laughs> Could you do something? Jesus repeatedly tells them they have been given everything they need. They had the sign of Jonah. They had all these various things shown to them. They had all this teaching shown to them. And the Greeks look at it and they say, the highest thing we value is wisdom. The highest thing we value is wisdom. Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. But he doesn't give them, he doesn't give them either of those things. He said, but we preach Christ crucified. And it's a stumbling block to a Jew. And it's folly to the Greek. The message Paul communicated to the two groups within his world. It was incredibly offensive to one. It scandalized them. The idea that a Messiah would come and be hung on a tree blew their minds. The idea that a Messiah would come and he wouldn't command armies to lead up a rebellion over the Roman Empire scandalized them. Christ crucified. And the Gentiles hear about it the Greeks hear about it and they say, let me get this straight. You're saying that one God created all of this, that we rebelled against this one God and now we have to respond to him through his son Jesus who took on the pain and the penalty of sin and death for us. And that if we confess our sins and if we turn away from them and we turn to Jesus and we receive the sacrifice on, that he took upon himself for us, that if we believe this and receive this, then we can be united with this God forever, forgiven our sins. And Paul would say, yeah, that's a pretty great summation of the gospel. And they say, well, that's just stupid. That makes no sense. There's not nearly enough gods. Your Messiah is weak and pathetic. And your belief set and system is inconsistent in a number of different ways with our own worldview. It's scandalizing and it's foolishness. Christ crucified. But look at the beauty of this. We have these two groups and all of us found ourselves at home with them, one of them, right? None of us started our lives as Christians. All of us started our lives being separated from God. So Paul looks at it and he says, but to those who are called, in essence, those who believe, those who are being saved. And then he looks at it and he says, of both the Jews and the Greeks, Christ, the power and the wisdom of God. Look at this. God reaches down into the circumstances of your life and gives to you belief. And he calls to you to respond. God looks in to the circumstances of your life, your rebellion, 
your disbelief, that you would look at Christianity and you would turn your back on it for 60, 70, 80, 90 years. And each time he extends to you the privilege of responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ. To the Jews, it's a stumbling block. To the Greek, it's folly. To you, it is an insult to your independence. It's a call to surrender and die, and you have no desire to surrender and die. To you, it is primarily an insult to your time and to your finances and to your autonomy. Or maybe you like the Greeks, you'd look at it and say, the system makes no sense. I want a worldview. I want a religion that coheres, that makes good sense. And so over the course of your life, you've sought to fashion Christianity into being this cohesive, solid unit, something palatable, something that you liked so that then you could respond to it. We preach Christ crucified. We preach the Son of God come in flesh, put to death, and risen on high. Because that's where our salvation rests. Our salvation doesn't rest in gaining in wisdom. Our salvation doesn't rest in growing in right behavior. Our salvation, as those who follow Jesus, rests in the one who is crucified. It rests in the one who is raised to fullness of life. Paul ends in verse 25. He says, The foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. I want you to think about something. I think about a handful of people I've shared the gospel with over the course of my life. I think about a guy that I had a... Uh, a chem, chem lab, a chem class with in college. I shared with Derek over and over again, and every time we'd share, he was giving me one of these polite kind of rub-offs of, man, that sounds, oh yeah, it's just really, really intriguing, and, and I mean, can, we, can we talk about something else? Or I, think, I can think about Samantha, who I had a math class with, and every time I'd share with her, she'd say, can we just work on, on math, and I want to do anything other than work on math. I can think about Daniel in Prague, who every time we shared with him, he'd say, but, but I'm an atheist. But I'm an atheist. They found stumbling blocks. They found it foolish. It wasn't my ability to be persuasive that was going to lead them to salvation and faith. It's a crucified Christ. And so five years later, I get a phone call from Derek. He said, every time you shared with me, like, I wasn't convinced. I thought, this guy may be insane. <laughs> he said, but I'm sitting there, and I'm at this event, and I hear the speaker lay out the gospel. And it just clicked. Not because it made more sense, not because the words were different, not because anything else had changed. But I knew that Jesus was Lord, and I knew I had to give my life to him. I got a call from Samantha like six months after that. She said, every time you begin to kind of share the gospel with me, it was a little bit irritating because we have math to work on. And I've been so disappointed in life. My dad had stepped out of my mom. He'd had an affair with a woman he worked with. 
I was so angry and mad at a God who, if he's all kind and all loving, why didn't he stop that? So every time you shared it, it was just kind of irritating. But a few months ago, somebody shared, and it just changed everything about me. It just clicked. Think about Daniel the atheist. His parents are atheists. His siblings are atheists. All of his friends are atheists. Every time we share with him, he'd say, I just come here to learn English. I just come here to learn English. Repeatedly exposing Daniel to the gospel, repeatedly exposing him to the gospel while he ate the world's largest sandwich the whole time I'm preaching. (laughs) And then a year after we come back to the States, Daniel gives his life to Jesus. Not because somebody presented a more persuasive argument, but because that thing that scandalized him, that thing he considered him, that he considered to be folly, finally found its home in his heart. The crucified Jesus offends and it scandalizes. It's all we've got. Praise God. The transformation and change and revival that we seek in the hearts of men and women of our community does not not rest upon my talent, Jesse's talent, or any of the talents of the people in this room. It rests upon the true news of the crucified Christ who is risen and exalted and reigns today. Amen? Amen. Amen. Hey, let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would move in our midst in this time, in this place. God, for those that over the course of their life, they have looked at the cross of Jesus and said, this is just stupid. This is just fake. This is just folly. That by the power of your spirit, you would be calling them to faith. They wouldn't be convinced through persuasive words, but they would be transformed by the movement of your spirit. So God, we pray for new life in them. For those who see some significant obstacle in Christianity, God, I pray that by the power of your spirit, you would help them to overcome that. You would call them to newness of life. God, I pray for those of us who have submitted ourselves to Jesus. We are downtrodden and tired because we're sharing the gospel, we're living out the gospel, and we're not seeing people changed. That God, that we would see in you truth and grace and the sustaining power to help us stay the course. It is the crucified Christ that changes lives. Help us to be faithful to him. God, we pray your spirit would fall upon us in this place and lead us in worship as we respond to you. We pray these things in Christ's name.